Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Section 13. If the Mesoglees way was so easy, it was very different matter when we took the Germont way. For that meant a long walk and we must make sure, first, of the weather. When we seemed to have entered upon a spell of fine days, when Françoise, in desperation that not a drop was falling upon the poor crops, gazing up at the sky, and seeing there only a little white cloud floating here and there upon its calm, azure surface, groaned aloud and exclaimed, You would say they were nothing more nor less than a lot of dogfish swimming about and sticking up their snouts. Ah, they never think of making it rain a little for the poor labourers. And then, when the corn is all ripe, down it will come, rattling all over the place, and think no more of where it is falling than if it was on the sea. When my father's appeals to the gardener had met with the same encouraging answer several times in succession, then someone would say at dinner, Tomorrow, if the weather holds, we might go the Gamont way. And off we would set, immediately after luncheon, through the little garden gate which dropped us into the Rue des Perchamps, narrow and bent at a sharp angle, dotted with grass plots over which two or three wasps would spend the day botanizing, a street as quaint as its name, from which its odd characteristics and its personality were, I felt, derived, a street for which one might search in vain through the Combray of today, for the public school now rises upon its site. But in my dreams of Combray, like those architects, pupils of Violette Le Duc, who, fancying that they can detect, beneath a Renaissance root-loft and an eighteenth-century altar, traces of a Norman choir, restore the whole church to the state in which it probably was in the twelfth century, I leave not a stone of the modern edifice standing. I pierce through it and restore the Rue des Perchamps. And for such reconstruction, memory furnishes me with more detailed guidance than is generally at the disposal of restorers. The pictures which it has preserved, perhaps the last surviving in the world today, and soon to follow the rest into oblivion, of what Combray looked like in my childhood's days. Pictures which, simply because it was the old Combray that traced their outlines upon my mind before it vanished, are as moving if I may compare a humble landscape with those glorious works, reproductions of which my grandmother was so fond of bestowing on me, as those old engravings of the Cenacolo, or that painting by Gentile Bellini, in which one sees, 
in a state in which they no longer exist, the masterpiece of Leonardo and the portico of St. Mark's. We would pass, in the Rue de Loiseau, before the old hostelry of the Oiseau Fleché, into whose great courtyard once upon a time would rumble the coaches of the Duchesses de Montpensier, de Guermont, and de Montmorency, when they had to come down to Combray for some litigation with their farmers, or to receive homage from them. We would come at length to the mole, among whose tree-tops I could distinguish the steeple of Saint-Hilaire, and I should have liked to be able to sit down and spend the whole day there, reading and listening to the bells, for it was so charming there, and so quiet that, when an hour struck, you would have said not that it broke in upon the calm of the day, but that it relieved the day of its superfluity, and that the steeple, with the indolent, painstaking exactitude of a person who has nothing else to do, had simply, in order to squeeze out and let fall the few golden drops which had slowly and naturally accumulated in the hot sunlight, pressed, at a given moment, the distended surface of the silence. The great charm of the Guermont Way was that we had beside us, almost all the time, the course of the Vivonne. We crossed it first, ten minutes after leaving the house, by a footbridge called the Pont Vieux, and every year, when we arrived at Combray, on Easter morning, after the sermon, if the weather was fine, I would run there to see, amid all the disorder that prevails on the morning of a great festival, the gorgeous preparations for which make the everyday household utensils that they have not contrived to banish seem more sordid than ever. The river flowing past, sky blue already between banks still black and bare, its only companions a clump of daffodils come out before their time, a few primroses, the first in flower, while here and there burned the blue flame of a violet, its stem bent beneath the weight of the drop of perfume stored in its tiny horn. The Pontvieux led to a towpath which, at this point, would be overhung in summer by the bluish foliage of a hazel, under which a fisherman in a straw hat seemed to have taken root. At Combray, where I knew every one, and could always detect the blacksmith or grocer's boy through his disguise of a beadle's uniform or chorister's surplice. This fisherman was the only person whom I was never able to identify. He must have known my family, for he used to raise his hat when we passed, and then I would always be just on the point of asking his name, when someone would make a sign to me to be quiet, or I would frighten the fish. We would follow the towpath, which ran along the top of a steep bank, several feet above the stream. The ground on the other side was lower, and stretched in a series of broad meadows as far as the village, and even to the distant railway station. Over these were strewn the remains, half buried in the long grass, of the castle of the old Counts of Combray, who, during the Middle Ages, had had on this side the course of the Vivonne as a barrier and defence against attack from the lords of Guermont and abbots of Martinville. Nothing was left now but a few stumps of towers, hummocks upon the broad surface of the fields, hardly visible. 
broken battlements over which, in their day, the bowmen had hurled down stones, the watchmen had gazed out over Neuvepont, Clairefontaine, Martinville-le-Sec, Bayeux-l'Exempt, fiefs all of them of Guermont, a ring in which Combray was locked. But fallen among the grass now, levelled with the ground, climbed and commanded by boys from the Christian Brothers' school, who came there in their playtime, or with lesson-books to be conned, emblems of a past that had sunk down, and well-nigh vanished under the earth, that lay by the water's edge now, like an idler taking the air, yet giving me strong food for thought, making the name of Combray connote to me not the little town of to-day only, but an historic city, vastly different, seizing and holding my imagination by the remote, incomprehensible features which it half concealed beneath a spangled veil of buttercups. For the buttercups grew past numbering on this spot, which they had chosen for their games among the grass, standing singly, in couples, in whole companies, yellow as the yolk of eggs, and glowing with an added luster I felt, because, being powerless to consummate with my palate the pleasure which the sight of them never failed to give me, I would let it accumulate as my eyes ranged over their gilded expanse, until it had acquired the strength to create in my mind a fresh example of absolute, unproductive beauty." and so it had been from my earliest childhood, when from the towpath I had stretched out my arms towards them, before even I could pronounce their charming name, a name fit for the prince in some French fairy tale, colonists perhaps in some far distant century from Asia, but naturalized now for ever in the village, well satisfied with their modest horizon, rejoicing in the sunshine and the water's edge, faithful to their little glimpse of the railway station, yet keeping, none the less, as do some of our old paintings, in their plebeian simplicity, a poetic scintillation from the golden east. I would amuse myself by watching the glass jars which the boys used to lower into the vivon, to catch minnows, and which, filled by the current of the stream, in which they themselves also were enclosed, at once containers, whose transparent sides were like solidified water, and contents, plunged into a still larger container of liquid, flowing crystal, suggested an image of coolness, more delicious and more provoking than the same water in the same jars would have done, standing upon a table laid for dinner, by showing it as perpetually in flight between the impalpable water, in which my hands could not arrest it, and the insoluble glass, in which my palate could not enjoy it. I decided that I would come there again with a line, and catch fish. I begged for and obtained a morsel of bread from our luncheon basket, and threw into the vivon pellets which had the power, it seemed, to bring about a chemical precipitation, for the water at once grew solid round about them in oval clusters of emaciated tadpoles, which, until then it had, no doubt, been holding in solution, invisible, but ready and alert to enter the stage of crystallization. Presently, the course of the Vivonne became choked with water-plants. At first they appeared singly, 
a lily, for instance, which the current, across whose path it had unfortunately grown, would never leave at rest for a moment, so that, like a ferry-boat mechanically propelled, it would drift over to one bank only to return to the other, eternally repeating its double journey. Thrust towards the bank, its stalk would be straightened out, lengthened, strained almost to breaking point, until the current again caught it, its green moorings swung back over their anchorage, and brought the unhappy plant to what might fitly be called its starting point, since it was fated not to rest there a moment before moving off once again. I would still find it there, on one walk after another, always in the same helpless state, suggesting certain victims of neurasthenia, among whom my grandfather would have included my aunt Lerny, who present, without modification, year after year, the spectacle of their odd and unaccountable habits, which they always imagine themselves to be on the point of shaking off, but which they always retain to the end, caught in the treadmill of their own maladies and eccentricities, their futile endeavours to escape serve only to actuate its mechanism, to keep in motion the clockwork of their strange, ineluctable, fatal daily round. Such as these was the water-lily, and also like one of those wretches whose peculiar torments, repeated indefinitely throughout eternity, aroused the curiosity of Dante, who would have inquired of them at greater length, and in fuller detail, from the victims themselves, had not Virgil, striding on ahead, obliged him to hasten after him at full speed, as I must hasten after my parents. But further on, the current slackened, where the stream ran through a property thrown open to the public by its owner, who had made a hobby of aquatic gardening, so that the little ponds into which the vivon was here diverted were a flower with water-lilies. As the banks at this point were thickly wooded, the heavy shade of the trees gave the water a background which was ordinarily dark green, although sometimes, when we were coming home on a calm evening after a stormy afternoon, I have seen in its depths a clear, crude blue that was almost violet, suggesting a floor of Japanese cloisonne. Here and there, on the surface, floated, blushing like a strawberry, the scarlet heart of a lily, set in a ring of white petals. Beyond these, the flowers were more frequent, but paler, less glossy, more thickly seeded, more tightly folded, and disposed, by accident, in festoons so graceful that I would fancy I saw floating upon the stream, as though after the dreary stripping of the decorations used in some Watteau festival, moss-roses in loosened garlands. Elsewhere a corner seemed to be reserved for the commoner kinds of lily, of a neat pink or white like rocket-flowers, washed clean like porcelain with housewifely care, while, a little further again, were others, pressed close together in a floating garden-bed, as though pansies had flown out of a garden like butterflies, and were hovering with blue and burnished wings over the transparent shadowiness of this watery border. This skyey border also, for it set beneath the flowers a soil of a colour more precious, 
more moving than their own. And both in the afternoon, when it sparkled beneath the lilies in the kaleidoscope of happiness, silent, restless, and alert, and towards evening, when it was filled like a distant haven with the roseate dreams of the setting sun, incessantly changing and ever remaining in harmony, about the more permanent colour of the flowers themselves, with the utmost profundity, evanescence, and mystery, with a quiet suggestion of infinity. Afternoon or evening, it seemed to have set them flowering in the heart of the sky. After leaving this park, the Vivonne began to flow again more swiftly. How often have I watched and longed to imitate, when I should be free to live as I chose, a rower who had shipped his oars and lay stretched out on his back, his head down, in the bottom of his boat, letting it drift with the current, seeing nothing but the sky which slipped quietly above him, showing upon his features a foretaste of happiness and peace. We would sit down among the irises at the water's edge. In the holiday sky a lazy cloud streamed out to its full length. Now and then, crushed by the burden of idleness, a carp would heave up out of the water with an anxious gasp. It was time for us to feed. Before starting homewards, we would sit for a long time there, eating fruit and bread and chocolate, on the grass, of which came to our ears, horizontal, faint, but solid, still, and metallic, the sound of the bells of Saint-Hilaire, which had melted not at all in the atmosphere it was so well accustomed to traverse, but, broken piecemeal by the successive palpitation of all their sonorous strokes, throbbed as it brushed the flowers at our feet. Sometimes, at the water's edge and embedded in trees, we would come upon a house of the kind called pleasure houses, isolated and lost, seeing nothing of the world save the river which bathed its feet. A young woman, whose pensive face and fashionable veils did not suggest a local origin, and who had doubtless come there, in the popular phrase, to bury herself, to taste the bitter sweetness of feeling that her name, and still more the name of him whose heart she had once held, but had been unable to keep, were unknown there, stood framed in a window from which she had no outlook beyond the boat that was moored beside her door. She raised her eyes with an air of distraction when she heard, through the trees that lined the bank, the voices of passers-by of whom, before they came in sight, she might be certain that never had they known, nor would they know, the faithless lover, that nothing in their past lives bore his imprint, which nothing in their future would have occasion to receive. One felt that in her renunciation of life she had willingly abandoned those places in which she would at least have been able to see him whom she loved, for others where he had never trod and I watched her, as she returned from some walk, along a road where she had known that he would not appear, drawing from her submissive fingers long gloves of a precious, useless charm. Never, in the course of our walks along the Guermont Way, 
might we penetrate as far as the source of the Vivonne, of which I had often thought, which had in my mind so abstract, so ideal an existence, that I had been as much surprised when someone told me that it was actually to be found in the same department, and at a given number of miles from Cambrai, as I had been on the day when I had learned that there was another fixed point somewhere on the earth's surface, where, according to the ancients, opened the jaws of hell. Nor could we ever reach that other goal, to which I longed so much to attain, Guermont itself. I knew that it was the residence of its proprietors, the Duke and Duchesse de Guermont. I knew that they were real personages, who did actually exist, but whenever I thought about them, I pictured them to myself either in tapestry, as was the coronation of Esther which hung in our church, or else in changing, rainbow colours, as was Gilbert the Bad in his window, where he passed from cabbage green, when I was dipping my fingers in the holy water stoop, to plum blue, when I had reached our row of chairs, or again altogether impalpable, like the image of Genevieve de Brabant, ancestress of the Guermont family, which the magic lantern sent wandering over the curtains of my room, or flung aloft upon the ceiling. In short, always wrapped in the mystery of the Merovingian age, and bathed, as in a sunset, in the orange light which glowed from the resounding syllable, Ant. And if, in spite of that, they were for me, in their capacity as a duke and a duchess, real people, though of an unfamiliar kind, this ducal personality was in its turn enormously distended, immaterialized, so as to encircle and contain that Guermont, of which they were duke and duchess, all that sunlit Guermont way of our walks, the course of the Vivonne, its water-lilies and its overshadowing trees, and an endless series of hot summer afternoons. And I knew that they bore not only the titles of Duke and Duchesse de Guermont, but that since the fourteenth century, when, after vain attempts to conquer its earlier lords in battle, they had allied themselves by marriage, and so become Counts of Combray, the first citizens consequently of the place, and yet the only ones among its citizens who did not reside in it, Comte de Combray, possessing Combray, threading it on their string of names and titles, absorbing it in their personalities, and illustrating, no doubt, in themselves, that strange and pious melancholy which was peculiar to Combray. Proprietors of the town, though not of any particular house there, dwelling, presumably, out of doors, in the street, between heaven and earth, like that Gilbert de Guermont, of whom I could see, in the stained glass of the apse of Saint-Hilaire, only the other side in dull black lacquer, if I raised my eyes to look for him, when I was going to Camus for a packet of salt. And then it happened that, going the Guermont way, I passed occasionally by a row of well-watered little gardens, over whose hedges rose clusters of dark blossom. I would stop before them, hoping to gain some precious addition to my experience, for I seemed to have before my eyes a fragment of that riverside country which I had longed so much to see 
and know since coming upon a description of it by one of my favourite authors. And it was with that storybook land, with its imagined soil intersected by a hundred bubbling watercourses, that Gamont, changing its form in my mind, became identified, after I heard Dr. Perspier speak of the flowers and the charming rivulets and fountains that were to be seen there in the Ducal Park. I used to dream that Madame de Gamont, taking a sudden capricious fancy for myself, invited me there, that all day long she stood fishing for trout by my side. And when evening came, holding my hand in her own, as we passed by the little gardens of her vassals, she would point out to me the flowers that leaned their red and purple spikes along the tops of the low walls, and would teach me all their names. She would make me tell her, too, all about the poems that I meant to compose. And these dreams reminded me that, since I wished, some day, to become a writer, it was high time to decide what sort of books I was going to write. But as soon as I asked myself the question, and tried to discover some subject to which I could impart a philosophical significance of infinite value, my mind would stop like a clock. I would see before me vacuity, nothing, would feel either that I was wholly devoid of talent, or that, perhaps, a malady of the brain was hindering its development. Sometimes I would depend upon my father's arranging everything for me. He was so powerful, in such favour with the people who really counted, that he made it possible for us to transgress laws which Francoise had taught me to regard as more ineluctable than the laws of life and death. As when we were allowed to postpone for a year the compulsory repointing of the walls of our house, alone among all the houses in that part of Paris, or when he obtained permission from the minister for Madame Sazerat's son, who had been ordered to some watering-place, to take his degree two months before the proper time, among the candidates whose surnames began with A, instead of having to wait his turn as an S. If I had fallen seriously ill, if I had been captured by brigands, convinced that my father's understanding with the supreme powers was too complete, that his letters of introduction to the Almighty were too irresistible for my illness or captivity to turn out anything but vain illusions, in which there was no danger actually threatening me, I should have waited with perfect composure the inevitable hour of my return to comfortable realities, of my deliverance from bondage or restoration to health. Perhaps this want of talent, this black cavity which gaped in my mind when I ransacked it for the theme of my future writings, was itself no more, either, than an unsubstantial illusion, and would be brought to an end by the intervention of my father, who would arrange with the government and with providence that I should be the first writer of my day. But at other times... While my parents were growing impatient at seeing me loiter behind instead of following them, my actual life, instead of seeming an artificial creation by my father, and one which he could modify as he chose, appeared, on the contrary, to be comprised in a larger reality which had not been created for my benefit, 
from whose judgments there was no appeal, in the heart of which I was bound, helpless, without friend or ally, and beyond which no further possibilities lay concealed. It was evident to me then that I existed in the same manner as all other men, that I must grow old, that I must die like them, and that among them I was to be distinguished merely as one of those who have no aptitude for writing. And so, utterly despondent, I renounced literature for ever, despite the encouragements that had been given me by Bloch. This intimate, spontaneous feeling, this sense of the nullity of my intellect, prevailed against all the flattering speeches that might be lavished upon me, as a wicked man, when every one is loud in the praise of his good deeds, is gnawed by the secret remorse of conscience. One day my mother said, You're always talking about Madame de Guermont. Well, Dr. Pespier did a great deal for her when she was ill four years ago, and so she is coming to Combray for his daughter's wedding. You'll be able to see her in church. It was from Dr. Pespier, as it happened, that I had heard most about Madame de Guermont, and he had even shown us the number of an illustrated paper in which she was depicted in the costume which she had worn at a fancy dress ball given by the Princess de Leon. Suddenly, during the nuptial mass, the beadle, by moving to one side, enabled me to see, sitting in a chapel, a lady with fair hair and a large nose, piercing blue eyes, a billowy scarf of mauve silk, glossy and new and brilliant, and a little spot at the corner of her nose. And because on the surface of her face, which was red, as though she had been very warm, I could make out, diluted and barely perceptible, details which resembled the portrait that had been shown to me, because, more especially, the particular features which I remarked in this lady, if I attempted to catalogue them, formulated themselves in precisely the same terms. A large nose, blue eyes, as Dr. Perspier had used when describing in my presence the Duchess de Guermont. I said to myself, This lady is like the Duchess de Guermont. Now the chapel from which she was following the service was that of Gilbert the Bad, Beneath its flat tombstones, yellowed and bulging like cells of honey in a comb, rested the bones of the old counts of Brabant, and I remembered having heard it said that this chapel was reserved for the Guermont family, whenever any of its members came to attend a ceremony at Combray. There was indeed but one woman resembling the portrait of Madame de Guermont, who on that day, the very day in which she was expected to come there, could be sitting in that chapel. It was she. My disappointment was immense. It arose from my not having borne in mind, when I thought of Madame de Guermont, that I was picturing her to myself in the colours of a tapestry or a painted window, as living in another century, as being of another substance than the rest of the human race. Never had I taken into account that she might have a red face, a mauve scarf like Madame Sazerat, and the oval curve of her cheeks reminded me so strongly of people whom I had seen at home that the suspicion brushed against my mind 
though it was immediately banished, that this lady, in her creative principle, in the molecules of her physical composition, was perhaps not substantially the Duchess de Guermont, but that her body, in ignorance of the name that people had given it, belonged to a certain type of femininity which included also the wives of doctors and tradesmen. It is, it must be Madame de Guermont, and no one else, were the words underlying the attentive and astonished expression with which I was gazing upon this image, which, naturally enough, bore no resemblance to those that had so often, under the same title of Madame de Guermont, appeared to me in dreams, since this one had not been, like the others, formed arbitrarily by myself, but had sprung into sight for the first time, only a moment ago, here in church. An image which was not of the same nature, was not colourable at will, like those others that allowed themselves to imbibe the orange tint of a sonorous syllable, but which was so real that everything, even to the fiery little spot at the corner of her nose, gave an assurance of her subjection to the laws of life, as in a transformation scene on the stage, a crease in the dress of a fairy, a quivering of her tiny finger, indicate the material presence of a living actress before our eyes, whereas we were uncertain till then, whether we were not looking merely at a projection of limelight from a lantern. Meanwhile, I was endeavouring to apply to this image, which the prominent nose, the piercing eyes pinned down and fixed in my field of vision, perhaps because it was they that had first struck it, that had made the first impression on its surface, before I had had time to wonder whether the woman who thus appeared before me might possibly be Madame de Guermont. To this fresh and unchanging image the idea, it is Madame de Guermont, but I succeeded only in making the idea pass between me and the image, as though they were two discs moving in separate planes, with a space between. But this Madame de Guermont, of whom I had so often dreamed, now that I could see that she had a real existence independent of myself, acquired a fresh increase of power over my imagination, which, paralysed for a moment by contact with a reality so different from anything that it had expected, began to react and to say within me, great and glorious before the days of Charlemagne, the Guermont had the right of life and death over their vassals, the Duchesse de Guermont descends from Genevieve de Brabant. She does not know, nor would she consent to know, any of the people who are here today. And then, O oh marvellous independence of the human gaze, tied to the human face by a cord so loose, so long, so elastic, that it can stray alone as far as it may choose, while Madame de Guermont sat in the chapel above the tombs of her dead ancestors, her gaze lingered here and wandered there, rose to the capitals of the pillars, and even rested upon myself, like a ray of sunlight straying down the nave, but a ray of sunlight which, at the moment when I received its caress, appeared conscious of where it fell. As for Madame de Guermont herself, 
since she remained there motionless, sitting like a mother who affects not to notice the rude or awkward conduct of her children who, in the course of their play, are speaking to people whom she does not know. It was impossible for me to determine whether she approved or condemned the vagrancy of her eyes in the careless detachment of her heart. End of section 13 Revolutionize your commute with SaulGoodBooks.com Just $10 a month for endless ad-free listening. Turn your daily travel into an opportunity to explore fascinating audiobooks. Start your audio journey at SaulGoodBooks.com today. Create a peaceful home with SaulGoodSounds.com Just $10 a month offers a sanctuary of ad-free sounds ideal for family relaxation and children's bedtime. Reclaim tranquility. Visit SaulGoodSounds.com to start your journey to a calmer household.